Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz guitarist, vocalist, and composer Alan Harris. He grew up in Brooklyn, and his 11th album is 2016's Nobody's Gonna Love You Better, and it's a part of his signature approach combining swinging jazz, R&B, balladry, rock, and blues, and even a touch of some Brazilian. He has played all over the world, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, America, and he was even at the 2012 Olympics in London, and he has the awards to prove it. So get to know Alan and dig this interview, my friends. Alan, thank you for taking some time out. It's an honor to speak with you. That's okay, man. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here. You're, you're pretty good about detailing what you're doing with your life musically, but in your own words, give me kind of a snapshot of activity that's going on for you. Well, um, my new record seems to be taking off really well. It's getting nice response in Europe, and they're starting to really put it in rotation here in the stations across the United States. And I'm going to kick it off with, um, I kicked off with a festival, the Charlie Parker Festival, which was a rousing success, you know, a couple, about 3,000 people. And now I'm heading for, um, going to Chicago with Chicago Jazz Orchestra, then we're going to Europe, China, Australia, then to Europe with my band and start promoting the new CD. So it looks really good, you know? And that's one thing I wanted to get into. Nobody's going to love you better. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. a palette of Harlem cultural landscapes, and I kind of wanted to get mm-hmm. into that. It's charting well, and it's doing well. Obviously, you're traveling with it. But how do you feel about it? I'm excited, man. Well, as you know, this, you know this, this, I can't remember what number of recording this is, but this one was just a fun it's my 11th recording. This one was just pure fun. I went in there with no apprehensiveness. I said, look, I'm not going in there with the attitude to sell it. I'm not going in there with the attitude to really please anybody. I'm going in there just to have fun with some wonderful musicians, lay down a few original songs, and then pick some songs that that are like almost like osmosis. Pick some songs that I did from Black Bar Jukebox, the same type of flavor, that remind me of my youth or when I was younger, and just stay out of the box, you know, a little Eddie Jefferson, I did a Steely Dan song, even a Hendrix tune, and just have fun with it, put our own arrangements to it, and just throw it up in the air and see what the public thinks about it, and lo and behold, man, I'm really getting some great response, Joe. Yeah, really absolutely, absolutely. Well, speaking of childhood and growing up, talk to me about your childhood in Brooklyn and how you got interested in music and jazz. Well, um, a lot of it had to do, well, of course, growing up in New York, at that time, um, raised by uh, people that uh, were um, in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance. My mother, she was a classical pianist from the South, moved up to Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance, along with my aunt. And I had relatives up here who helped her get up here. And she was a prodigy, more or less, on the piano. She graduated first from her class from uh, um, the uh, School of the Performing Arts. So I was exposed to a lot of music, plus Katie, that uh Couple that with my aunt, another aunt of mine, great aunt, who had a soul food restaurant called Aunt Kate's Place down the street from the Apollo. And she catered to everyone from Louis Armstrong to Duke Ellington to the Temptations. Everyone came in there and ordered their meal between their shows if they were doing shows on the matinee on a Sunday. So I was privy to that as a young kid. I just sat there and kept my mouth shut. So um, I was really exposed to a lot of different music as, as a lot of Americans were during that time frame. There wasn't anything put in a box. You just heard everything that um, was placed on the table in front of you. That's why the jukebox thing came about, because, as you know, growing up, when you listen to a jukebox, they had everything from Johnny Cash, Earthman and Fire, to Miles Davis, to Nancy Wilson in the jukebox. 
And so I wanted to create that flavor on this last CD where it was eclectic blend of music, but using my own style. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of influences, growing up, what jazz albums were seminal for you that you remember that were really getting you going? Oh, boy. There were so many. Um, of course, Kind of Blue, that goes without saying. My mind is sort of it's filled with a myriad of different songs because every, everything was played in my household. Everybody yeah. played everything from Billy Eckstein to Charlie Pride. So jazz was just um, one of the many art forms that, that my family played. It was all American music to them. Well, let me ask you this. Let me kind of detour a little bit and stay in the younger mm-hmm. years of your life. What was your dream growing up? Did you always dream that you were going to become what you are today and, and be a performer? Yeah, I did. You know, I, I really, I think that kicked in in my later uh, teenage years when I was 18 or 19. Prior to that, I was just drifting, you know, going to school, listening to what my parents said they wanted me to be, you know how that is. Yeah. Uh, it's only when I when I went and uh, finished my uh, last year of high school and went into college that I started to be surrounded by people who weren't in my family and they influenced me greatly because there was a more during that time period late 60s early 70s there was a freedom movement going on with white and black in america and what's that the line in um that hendrix song that i do let your let your fancy flow yeah it was more you know and so i when i went to school at that time when i was going to school you listen to everything, and so the door was wide open for you to be anything, what you wanted to be. I, I naturally just went back into the music. I went into the music because of my family's um, influence on me. But I didn't know that I wouldn't, that I'd be more than just jazz or classical. And I was meeting people who turned me on to the Allman Brothers, turned me on to Led Zeppelin, turned me on to funk and R&B. And I coupled that with jazz, and it was just really exciting time for me to be to be a young man during that period of time. And because of that, it helped form my musical acumen today. Even though I'm I'm a student of jazz and I love it, and I've done a lot of tributes to Nat King Cole, and I've done Billy Eckstein and that, and also Eddie Jefferson. With this record, I'm going deep into my, deep into my childhood and pulling out some of those rock and R&B uh, licks and adding it to my jazz. And that's the sound that you're getting now. Right on. So talk to me about your education. Early on and, and even before you started professionally, who was really important and what do you really remember about your formal education? Well, I would th- my mother, because because of the the mantle of being children of the Renaissance, there was a lot of pressure for her group of people, you know, for her. When she moved when they relocated from the Exodus from the South, the second Exodus, not the one after the Civil War the second exodus, the 20s and 30s, when Harlem really opened up for people of color, when Langston Hughes, Darnos, and I mean, there, it was just a, uh, James Baldwin, uh, there was a really cultural curve happening. My mother happened to be on that curve, being a classical pianist. So she believed that in order for me to pursue a career, whatever it is, I had to first have a liberal arts education. Now that's not so much that everybody wants to do marketing and management and making money. But when I was growing up, it was all about a liberal education. So they they sent me to Catholic school from the time I was in the first grade to the 10th grade. I went to Catholic school and was more or less put under the thumb of Jesuit priests and Franciscan nuns. 
and their education was really strict. And my mother, because she was a strict disciplinarian, really stayed on top of what they were teaching me. So my education was built upon a lot of the classics, a lot of reading, and coupled with a lot of liberal arts, you know, um, it, it was really a wonderful um, force for them to to force me into that arena of the liberal arts. And I use that now as I'm older. I'm very liberal, of course. And uh, they believe that it doesn't matter about making money just as long as you're happy and you're fulfilling your dream as a human being. And I carry that with me now. I'm really thankful for them for that. Absolutely. How did your career start? What, what were your first gigs, your first memories? Hmm. My first memory was in the third grade. Sister Frances Anthony said to the class, this semester, everybody in this class and everybody sat in alphabetical order is going to do something. You're going to sing, uh, read a poem, write something you did this summer. Somebody's going to say every week we will feature three or four kids. And when my name came up H for Harris, my mother said, you're going to sing a song. I said, oh, really? No way. She taught me a song called Tony Bennett's version of Blue Velvet. She wore blue velvet. <laughs> I remember, right, I remember it was time for me to, and they called you Master Harris and the nuns. It was time for me to get up in front of the class. And my mother had rehearsed me for like a week with this song. I did it in front of my peers and also the nuns. And a third of the way into the song, Sister Frances Anthony just stopped me. And I thought she was going to admonish me. She stopped me. I sat there in front of the class. She brought all the rest of the nuns of the school in. They made me sing the song over. And I saw the reaction that they got from that. And I think that was the first inkling of me wanting to be a performer when I saw the reaction of my friends and schoolmates and my teachers with their jaws open when I sang that song. Right on. That's beautiful, man. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the beauty of your sound is it's evolved over the years. I mean, you got swinging mm-hmm. jazz, you got R&B, balladry, rock, blues, and even a touch of the Brazilian vibe to it. How did you evolve to this point? Was it travel? Was it study? Was it what? What happened to you to get to this point? Uh, both, you know, my traveling, of course. You know, I've been traveling since I was a young man. I think I've been, you know, from Japan to Australia, New Zealand, all through Europe, almost every state in the United States, uh, South America. Yeah, a lot of my travels, and I've been fortunate enough because of what I do, what we do, including you. That I'm, I'm including you into that because you play this music and you're a purveyor of it. We meet so many wonderful people that are cousins in other industries, in other genres, industrial or politics, whatever. They don't get to experience what we experience. We experience people when they're at their most happiest, and that's playing music. So they impart upon us a friendship and also we glean from them. Like if I meet someone from Venezuela, from Cuba, we exchange things musically, not just friendship-wise. And I grow, and I might know that I'd get something from them. It's when I sit down and write a song, I'll say, oh, wow, this reminds me of that groove that Paco de Rivera and I sat with and I hung out and heard him play. It, it's, through, it's through that that um, I've been able to to write and to perform a lot of different styles. And once I find out that I am interested in something, I go whole hog into it and study about it. But I think a lot of it has to do with my travels throughout my life. So if you lean back in the easy chair of life and think 11, uh, your 11 albums in, you've you played for countless folks, 
How do you feel about your career right now, evolutionarily speaking? How do you feel everything's worked and where you're going? Do you feel good? Well, I feel wonderful. I mean, there was a moment there a few years ago where I was not questioning what I was doing. Cause I, was ne- I never questioned it. I never fell off the wagon. You know, I don't want to do this. It's not happening. But I was a little bit disenchanted because of the influx of a lot of the hip-hop and that was infiltrating. It wasn't infiltrating yet. Now, a lot of the people like Robert Gaspers and that are marrying the two, and it's really wonderful. But there was a moment there where I was saying, hmm, the jazz thing is really being ignored in our industry. And that's my, not just my bread and butter, it's my lifeline. So I was a little bit um, disillusioned about the direction I was going to with it. But the last few years, it's been wonderful, man. It's been wonderful. The young guard has really married the new sound with the jazz, with jazz and classical. And they come up with a groove that is just refreshing. You know, you look at the Hamilton, the play Hamilton. You look at the look at the young cats who are playing music now. They're incorporating all the different styles of hip hop and R and B with the standards that I have grown up on. And man, it's been wonderful playing with them. No, I'm really, I'm really happy where I am now with my career because I see there's an acceptance more than before. Before there was acceptance, but it was only with a chosen few, the jazz police or with diehard fans or people who grew up with this music, with this music in the household. Now it's starting to be accepted across the whole board of people. When you look at jazz in 2016, how healthy of an organism is it? Well, it's, um, I mean, it has its problems, of course. You know, jazz is, I don't want to quote the artist, but an artist said a few years ago, jazz is dead. I mean, he sent the block out on that, blog out on that. It was pretty ugly, too. Yeah. Jazz is dead, let's move on. And if you if you look hard into the archives of emails or Internet, you can find out who said that. I don't want to say his name. But thank God that's not the case, you know. Yeah. Jazz is not dead. Jazz is so much alive because, like classical music, students of jazz have to not only feel and be able to swing and listen at what's been said, you have to learn your instrument and your craft. You really do. Yeah. So that's always exciting for young cats, young musicians who are learning their instrument. When you go to jazz, you have to know how to play. You have to learn how to play first before you experiment or improvise or use your own voice in it. So in that case, it never die. So let me ask you this. You've been awarded a lot of awards over the years. New York Nightlife mm-hmm. Award, Backstage Beach, I can go on and on. But I mm-hmm. want to know this. I don't want to know your favorite award, but I want to know one that really kind of hit you out of left field. You weren't expecting it, and it really got you in a good way. I got a, I got a Chamber Music Award. You know, they gave me one, and they gave me um, a grant, and that took me out a little bit because I didn't think I was go- I was prepared for that. It was based upon a piece I wrote across that river, and it didn't come out of the blue. But my manager, who's also my wife, submitted me, and they came back on mass and said, "Oh, this is exciting! We're going to give you an award for it. We're going to give you some money to put it on different schools in front of people." That was a surprise because. It gave me a boost of confidence that 
I'm on the right path, not just with jazz, not just with R&B, of what my decision in life is to become an artist. Because this was totally out of the box for me. It was something that I wrote on a fluke because I felt like writing it because there was a little bit of this R&B country thing in me from my youth, and I coupled it with jazz. And the American Chamber people came out of the woodwork and just said, hey, we think you should pursue this a little more. Just to spur you on, here's something. Good luck. And that took me by surprise. You know, the the beauty of jazz is the history. I mean, the, the beginnings mm-hmm. of jazz all the way to today is so rich and so full of characters and, and greatness. If you could go back in time, get into that jazz DeLorean, who would you go see and where would you go? Wow. Who would I go see? What a question. Okay, I like <laughs> I mean, oof. If I could jettison myself back, but be able to jettison myself back here again, because I don't like picking cotton, and I damn sure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I hear Trump say, they make America great. I don't want to go back to that area, because uh-uh. it wasn't great for me or for <laughs> no. my people. But if I could just go back in a bubble and revisit the people that, ah, you know, that's really hard. I'd like to meet a young Louis Armstrong yeah. when he first realized that the sound that he was developing in New Orleans and Storyville with that Trump coronet that was given him, I like to be privy to the first time that he really moved an audience and decided to break away from the traditional sounds of the field hollering thing or from all that and develop his own thing when he was with the, with the Hot Five. I like to be a fly on a wall to experience that. Cause that must have been really exciting because from what I gather... From now, from then to now, everyone has copied him. So it must have been something that just rocked the world when he did it. And yeah. I would love to have been there to experience the onslaught of that and how that would have affected me today. Yeah, that would be beautiful. So mm-hmm. as a practitioner of jazz, I want to ask you a very simple question. Why do you love jazz? Oh, that's that's wonderful because it's our true American art form. It is really our gift to the world, jazz is. And it's not a black thing, which everyone says, you know, which is black people. No, it's such an amount, it's such a, a blending of everything from Irish immigrants to Italian, our true art form that we can look upon and say, this is the real melting pot. Because I see that when I travel out of our borders, the world looks at us as jazz is our gift to them, and they really hold it in reverence, even a little bit more than we do. Because when I'm overseas and performing, then I come back, I look at us differently. I try to look at friends and foes who play this music here in America, and I say to them, do you realize how sacred this is to other people around the world, that we have such a special thing? We need to really start revere it a little bit better and stop taking it for granted and start letting those who are the ones, the exponents of it, share in the wealth, like our hip-hop and gospel and rock people share in their wealth. Absolutely. Absolutely. For all the fans that you've played for over the years, what has been one of the nicest things that someone has said to you after a show? A small child in Charleston, he was a gullah. I was playing for the gullahs down there. It was a, my drum at the time was a Quentin Baxter. He plays with 
with um, Freddie Cole, and he plays with Renee Marie every now and then. But I played with him for a couple of years. He was in my band. And he invited me to a Gullah festival, the Gullahs down there. He's a Gullah. And I remember playing for the Gullah kids, and I was just blown away. And one of the kids came up to me, and I said, how'd you like the show? And the kid said, I love the show. And I said, why'd you like it? He said, because it made me smile. Mm-hmm. And, and I just walked away. I mean, I almost teared up when he said this little dark-skinned kid with nappy head, you know, lived on one of, who lived off the coast of of Savannah and Charleston on an island there. And they they brought them in to see the show. It just moved me. As a matter of fact, it rocked my world for the whole weekend. I was gone, and I searched for this kid for the weekend. I couldn't find him. They took him back to the island with the other kids. But that, to me, really set the template for now, yeah. and that happened like seven years ago when a kid said to me, you make me smile, Mr. Harris. I, I didn't even know what to say. I just looked at this kid. I wanted to hug him. Yeah. And that, I take that with me every time I perform. That's what I do. Yeah. I make people smile. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to save the, maybe the hardest one for last, and I want to know this. Everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, the people mm-hmm. that you play for. But I want you to tell me, when you wake up and face the world, who do you think you mm-hmm. are? Wow. Wow, Joe. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, God. That's wonderful. Uh, wow. That's good. That's, that's pretty deep. Well, when I wake up and I put my feet on the ground, I have to create my own day. I mean, there's no punch card. There's no boss that I have to deliver a bunch of Xerox copies of graphs and stuff. I'm not being micromanaged. You know, I'm not in the office where we have to meet a schedule or a quota. So every day it's on me to define what I'm about. Thankfully, I have a manager who's my wife who helps me with that. And I have an art. I always remember what I'm going to do in the next few days as far as performance-wise. Because that centers me. Because the audience, for some reason or other, has a better grip on what I do than I do. <laughs> they really do. And 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 I, and I always think about what they expect out of me. And I use that template to get me going. Because the audience is like a little child. They do not lie. They don't lie. And I try to say to myself, okay, here I am. I'm up and about. I'm cognizant. I have a new day in front of me. i got to prepare myself for whatever I want to do. What is it that I need to do? to not just be accepted by people and loved by them, hopefully. What is it they expect me to be? And at the end of the day, I'm still searching for that. I found out that they just want me to be me. That's the hardest thing for me to create every day, remembering that. What a great way to end everything. That's great. Hey, Alan, thank you for opening up. I appreciate your story. Thank you for the music. Thank you, Joe. All right, brother. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Alan for his time, his honesty, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or go to YouTube and search for Neon Jazz, and for all things Neon Jazz, we're at the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.